Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Flourish FM. In this episode, Nick and I talk to Tonil Miller. She is a prominent organizational psychologist and consultant with a deep understanding of human behavior, high performance, and organizational dynamics. She has over 15 years of experience advising Fortune 500 corporations, top consulting firms, and high growth startups. And she's become a respected figure in the business transformation, leadership, and employee experience space. She's been featured in various shows and various media outlets, including the Huffington Post, NASDAQ, Tech Funnel, Employee Experience Magazine, and the American Journal of Health Promotion. And she's the author of the recently published The Flourishing Effect, Unlocking Employee Thriving and High Performance as Your Competitive Edge, which is the focus of our conversation today. It's a playbook for unlocking employee and organizational thriving and sustainable performance. Nick, what did you enjoy most about this conversation? I'll keep it short and sweet. I think she lays out such a compelling, well-researched, right, science-based argument for why companies, organizations can be a both and, right? They can enhance and impact positively their employees' well-being and still be very successful, right? And we've, we've talked to one or two people who I think have sent similar messages right now. And I think in chatting with Tanil, it was just... It was just, again, another duh moment. Like this is, of course, this is what companies should be doing. But beyond that duh moment, Tanil really did a nice job, I think, of breaking it down into a lot of clear action steps, which of course the book goes into in much greater detail and granularity, but she really gives some nice tangible steps people can take as a part of this conversation. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely, me too. So without further ado, this is our conversation with Tanil Miller. We hope you love it. Hey, Tanil, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us here today. We've really enjoyed reading your first book, The Flourishing Effect, Unlocking Employee Thriving and High Performance as Your Competitive Edge, which you describe as a playbook for unlocking employee and organizational thriving and sustainable performance. So to begin with, tell us about the book and what inspired you to write it. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you both for having me. As we mentioned before we started recording, I've listened to almost all of your podcast episodes and I just love the content. So I'm so excited to be here with you. What I would say is I've spent so much time at this point as a management consultant, an IO psychologist, and then also an executive coach for all kinds of different folks, global organizations, startups, large companies, everything in between. And what I've noticed and discovered is like, there's a lot of different blind spots that tend to trip these organizations and leaders up when they're trying to attract, engage, and unlock their talent. And so I've seen that what works as well, right? So I've seen the blind spots, I've seen what's tripping them up, and then I've also seen what works really well. And what I noticed along the way was that the same things that enable people to flourish as human beings are the exact same things that enable them to perform at the highest levels and deliver the business results that the organization wants. So it seemed to me like people were missing this. Somehow we were either focused on the business results over here or people programs over here, and there wasn't really a lot of connecting the dots and seeing the actual causal relationship. So I started writing the book and my goal with it is really to shed light on these blind spots and highlight the crucial relationship that we just talked about between employee thriving and the actual business success. And so the book does that. And it also shows readers how to transform their organizations into these thriving ecosystems where the business is actually prospering and thriving because the people can do the best work of their lives. Awesome. Well, should we start by digging into some of these blind spots? Certainly could. Yeah. What are some what are some of these blind spots you've identified in your work? 
Yeah, well, there's quite a few. I think chapter two does a nice job, at least I tried to anyways, of outlining kind of at a high level, like here's some buckets of where they fall into. And then the rest of the book really outlines how do we address each of those in the topic areas. So for example, things like employees feeling like they almost have to step back in time to go to work. So if we have old social contracts from 100 years ago, we have old clunky technology, and it feels like 1985 inside the company when we're, we know it's not that time outside the company, those can be things. Lots of different forms of friction. And again, that can be bureaucracy, tons of meetings, emotional frictions, such as, you know, uh, microaggressions, toxic culture, those types of things. There's all kinds of things along the way, but those are some of the ones that pop up in the beginning. And then the other big bucket, I think, is really frustrating people's human needs, right? We don't really think about that when we design ways of working in the organization, but a lot of the ways we currently work in organizations do frustrate those human needs. And I know we'll get into that in a bit, but those are some of the bigger buckets. Let's get into it now. Like what we walk us through just what you mean by needs. Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about Maslow's hierarchy hierarchy of needs, that everyone's familiar with that. We know we've got the safety needs and the you know connection needs and the esteem needs and the transcendence, all those pieces. We've also got, when you think about self-determination theory, as I know you're both very familiar with all of this. We've got those needs for autonomy, connection, and mastery, right? So I was, I've always kind of really loved those two theories. I've always had them in the back of my mind playing when I started my career. And so as I've kind of gone on this journey, I've noticed that these needs, these exact needs we're talking about are stifled all the time. So we think about some of the things we just talked about. So we've got well-being as kind of that basic safety needs, right? Whether it's financial, physical, mental, that sort of thing. A lot of the workplace practices stifle that. So that could be companies that perhaps are not paying a living wage or not paying that, I guess, living wage is the best way to say it at this point in time. I mean, my, my thought on that is like, if people are worried about paying their bills and finding money to put gas in their car to go to work, and again, depending on where you are in the world and where you, all the different factors, this is a big deal. And we think about especially like the physical and um, mental needs of well-being and the way the workplace stifles that, whether it's a sedentary lifestyle or all the stress and anxiety and not ability to sleep because we're burned out and, you know, or all those things. At, at kind of a basic level. And if you want me to, I can certainly dive into some of the higher level needs as well. Well, so, I mean, as a quick summary, what we're hearing so far is, you know, a flourishing person is self-determined and self-actualizing, right? In process, I think we're friendly with Scott Barry Kaufman. You mentioned, right, transcend and some of those things. And I think he'd say like that process is never done. It's something we're we're always doing, right? So self-actualized, self-determined, but yeah, if you want to take us into some of those like more nuanced needs, keep going. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, just stop me anywhere along the way because I can ramble. <laughs> so, no, it's so great. Yeah. Ramble. Um, right, okay. Please. So let's go higher, right? So we think about the connection needs. We see all the, the data coming out and all the stories in the news about how people, whether it's a toxic culture or a bad boss or what are just not feeling like they belong, they're not included, those types of things that we see all the time. That's that connection and esteem need. There's the treating people like little kids piece, which is like things like the return to office demands and micromanagement and just monitoring mouse clicks and things like, like that kind of thing between people. Like trust. Kids. Yeah, yeah. Trust. Right. Yeah. The autonomy goes away there, goes out the window. When you think about mastery and actualization, there's also the whole growth and development. I think millennial and Gen Z, the number one or number two reason why they leave jobs today. I mean, we know the bad manager is an issue, but one of them is because they're not growing. They're not getting to use their skills. They're not actualizing that type of thing. So that's a big way we stifle a lot of times in our organization. And then finally, when you think about purpose and meaning, well, as we know, that's that self-transcendence piece, right? And most companies don't really 
unless they're really amazing, they don't, they're not thinking about how do we design the work and how do we design the ways of working so that people can actually find meaning and purpose. And as you probably saw in this book, I mean, there's some really practical, simple, low, no cost ways to do all of these things and meet all these needs. But these are just some examples of, of how that plays out. So autonomy and esteem, right? The freedom and the capacity to be able to be productive, effective, like trusted, those sorts of things, right? The mastery piece, so the ability or the environment where I can grow and improve my capacities, develop environmental mastery, right? And then the connection to both who and what I'm working with or on, right? The purpose piece, but also the people I'm working side by side with, right? Yep. And the results of the work as well, which is where the meaning comes right. in. hundred percent. That purpose, that impact, that contribution piece. So you give an examples there. It sounds like of where the same, the exact same things that are causing languishing at work could also cause flourishing at work, right? That's exactly. So many companies it. don't focus on meaning and purpose at work. And yet when you do focus on that, I mean, that's one of the things that can really enhance thriving at work. Connection. A lot of people who aren't really connected at work, but also something, but when you focus on that, that can really contribute to thriving environments. But also sounded like one of the issues where we lack those things is a higher risk of burnout. Mm-hmm. So lack of connection, lack of autonomy, lack of sense of meaning at work, lack of opportunities to growth, being micromanaged in, in when you're lacking autonomy. Is that something you've worked on as well in your in your work in organizational psychology, like how to address workplace burnout and reduce it? Absolutely. And I love that you brought in the meaning and impact piece, because a lot of people think of burnout as, oh, I'm working too many hours. And I think the definition, like a formal definition is something along the lines of like, I worked so many hours that I didn't have time in between to recharge fully. It's something like that. So they're thinking of it more like that, more of that operational piece, which is true. That is a factor. There's a lot of other factors as you brought up, which is so great. You totally get this micromanagement, removing the autonomy, all of that causes burnout, feeling no meaning in your work causes burnout. And to your point, flipping those on their head and having ways to have meaning in the work, finding ways for people to grow in the work actually energizes them more. And I'm actually a good example of this. And I've spoken to a lot of people in my work that we do this as well, where we do things like job crafting and like Amy Rosniski's work and some of the other different ways that you can build that growth into the work and more autonomy into the tasks themselves and more enjoyment and flow. And then also connecting the dots so people feel the meaning in their work and the impact and the burnout goes down. So it's a really nice, it's a way to mitigate that burnout. Right. I mean, there's so many areas we could dig in to get practical strategies here. Let's let's just say a little more about this. So you have five chapters of the book focused on human needs, right? Chapters nine to 13. And in addition to the areas you've mentioned, so we have well-being, connection, autonomy, growth, meaning and purpose. Those are the key areas, right? And all of those, you argue, are really important to cultivate. And are the, you write that the best way to increase intrinsic motivation, engagement, performance, and loyalty. I'm sure you have loads of practical strategies for developing all these. Let's just pick one as an example. So what's one really good strategy for developing any one of those areas in a workplace? The one that's the nearest, and well, there's many that are near and dear. There's two, but there's one in particular that I think is very easy for people to get started on tomorrow. And I've seen it in action. I've done it myself. And that would be the meaning piece, the meaning and purpose piece. And so I've seen this done in a lot of ways, but I'll just throw out some ideas here. Something as simple as 
the leaders in the organization being very deliberate. Notice my language when I say these things. It's not things that are expensive. It's not things that are difficult. It's just being deliberate and focused on it and kind of continuing to practice it. So leaders really telling stories of the ways that different people in the organization and how their work or how they interacted with each other impacts the customer, impacts the other teams, impacts the organization as a whole, maybe the community in some cases, right? So that might be at town halls, they're telling these stories like Bill George from Medtronic did at their Christmas parties. Like that's a good example. It might be something as simple as the average manager is just thinking a little bit more deliberately about, okay, you know, I know that John over here is, is working on spreadsheets and he thinks his job is meaningless and it's it's kind of, you know, tactical and it's kind of boring, but I'm actually going to connect the dots for him and tell him a story or thank him specifically in, in detail of like, hey, I really like the way that you did this or you informed me about that or just like getting very specific about how a person does their work and how that benefits you or how that actually makes that work product better. And then showing them and connecting the dots between that spreadsheet they're working on and how, you know, downstream, how that impacts the customer, how that impacts the the other team and the other teammates, the organization. So just little things like that can make the hugest difference when it comes to creating meaning and purpose in someone's work. So here's, this is, uh, I'm going to zoom back out for a second, right? Because that's a great example. And what I keep coming back to, having worked with organizations, schools, whatever it might be, is this language we sometimes use, which is like me and we, right? So when it comes to well-being and performance, how much of it is on me, individual, right? Am I taking care of my sleep? Am I doing my gratitude? Like we can get into all the strategies Versus how much of it is a we thing, ecosystem, policy, practice, those sorts of things. And I'm not asking you to like boil it down to a percentage or a ratio, right? But how do you think about or explore or try to navigate what I've found to be some of those inherent tensions, right? Because you're painting this awesome both and picture. You can be well and crush it, right? But that takes a lot of teamwork, I think, within an organization and a culture. So just curious how you navigate that. I love this question and you're spot on. And that's why, so this book is really that organizational level, like what the policies, procedures, leaders, managers can really do at kind of this higher level to get the ecosystem going for people individually. But to your point, we're all adults and we need to take equal responsibility. So I'm actually, I'm actually starting another book after this that's focused on that part of it. Like as an individual, what can cool. you do? Great. So, so let's take burnout, that kind of thing as an example. Yeah, perfect. Practical. So an individual level, I should be proactive in setting boundaries and not just setting them, but enforcing them and feeling confident to push back and say, hey, you know what? I've done a scan of myself today. I'm not my best self. I'm present and aware of that. And that's that's a lot of self-work, right? Just being aware of that and and telling your teammates and and team agreements can help with these too, whether it's your manager or the whole team of saying, hey, my my lunches are on my calendar. My appointments are being very transparent as an individual and and standing strong with those boundaries. That's important, I think. And then just again, being and respecting other people's boundaries as well on the team. So on an individual level, it's like, let's be very clear about what we need to do our best and be our best self and succeed and proactively ask for our needs to be met if like manager for example i need i need you to to have more vulnerability with me or whatever that might be so on an individual level there's things like that that we can be doing to mitigate our burnout or the well-being in any realm in that way but then on the manager level the manager and the team also have to be again willing to not just do that for themselves the manager has to role model that behavior as well and not be sending emails on the weekends for example and encouraging team members to take extra time off and then on the organizational level it's those policies and procedures we talked about where maybe there's a tool that we say emails don't get sent or it's part of the culture where we don't send emails outside of work hours or we don't expect that hustle culture or if we do we allow people to uh, opt into it or different things like that 
Yeah, thank you, Tanil. Right. The book is called The Flourishing Effect. What is The Flourishing Effect? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay, so YouTube will totally give this, and so will your audience, of course. So if we think about one part, Aristotle's concept of eudaimonia, right? That's I started college with that class, intro to philosophy, and I just fell in love ever since then. So that's the good life, flourishing. We've got that. We couple that with Martin Seligman's work, which I know that everybody is also on this call, probably very familiar with that, his work in positive psychology and how he highlights flourishing as really that absence of the deficit like the previous field of psychology had been looking at, where it's like, what's wrong with you? What's the disease? And actually looking at what's the presence of like optimal functioning or net positive, right? So pulling in the, the flourishing from his work. And then I think for me, I bring that together and I feel like applying this thinking to the workplace means removing some of those sources of friction, as I mentioned earlier, and some of the ways the organization frustrates the human needs. And on top of that, putting in practice some of these things we're talking about, the experiences that actually meet people's needs. So it's removing that negative stuff we're talking about and also making sure that there is that positive piece there. So what do you think about that? Love the idea. I loved it in the book. I mean, I have a follow-up question, but Nick, do you have something yeah, awesome? uh, so I love I love all of it and I deal with this in like my own professional settings as well right so when we say remove the bad or the friction and build the good I think it can sometimes easily get confused with nothing's ever bad and everything's always good and what we've found through a lot of our interviews which you've heard right and talking to experts I'm thinking of the Anna Lemkes and the Todd Cashins and we just had a great conversation last week with with Robert Biswas Diener there's utility in some unpleasantness. So how does that get integrated into maybe how you think about a flourishing effect? Is it is it all positive or pleasant all the time? Or is it you tell us? Yeah, and I actually had a feeling you'd bring this up because I truly believe in that, like just my own personal philosophy on life that a lot of the times we find the meaning in the really difficult situations. We find the growth in the really difficult stretch situations. In the book, I don't think I talk about it as directly as we're going to talk about it right now, but I'll give you my two cents on it. I think that if you think about it, first of all, there's so many things that are difficult about work as it is. So I would say there's still going to be plenty of difficulty there, even if we remove a lot of the junk. That's always going to be there. So there's that. The other part is I think that's where a lot of the things chapter... 12, perhaps the chapter on actualization, where they're talking all the different ways that you could grow and develop your people and help them actualize. A lot of that, as you probably know, because you read it, it's a lot of things that actually stretch people because that goes back to the human needs. They want to be stretched. They want to be challenged in some way. And that's where mastery comes in. It's mastery because you spend a lot of time and energy stretching and growing and doing it. You know, it's easy. So I mastered it. That's not what we're talking about. And so what I would say is all the different growth mechanisms that we talk about in that chapter and like, you know, internal marketplaces, stretch assignments, reverse mentoring, cross mentoring, job cracking, all these different things. That's where I see a lot of that piece coming in that you're talking about, as well as with the purpose and meaning. Again, when you bring that in with the, that doesn't mean we work less and that's why we're not burned out. It means if we find that meaning and purpose in our work, we're willing to work that much harder. Not that we're going to burn ourselves out, but we're willing to give it our all that much more. And so I think that's where some of that piece comes in, where we need the difficult to really have that in there. Yeah. This is the chapter entitled, Make Them a Better Version of Themselves in the book, right? Activating strengths, potential mastery. This is a great question, actually. I think we should dig into this because so this this is the the recurring theme of this show. Like we could almost have a new subtitle to this show, like how to thrive amidst adversity or something like that, or how to 
how to embrace difficult things in life to flourish. So that could be our subtitle because it's like every episode this comes up. But in the context of a workplace, that really is a challenge. Imagine imagine like doing a, a, an intervention or some consultancy with a workplace where you're trying to improve well-being in the workplace and trying to help everyone flourish. You're like, guys, you've got to embrace the fact that one of the key paths towards flourishing is to embrace difficulty, to embrace hard emotions, you know, to, to strive through occasional suffering and so on. It's like, dude, we didn't bring you here to like <laughs> tell us we need to suffer at work and just endure it, right? And of course, I suppose some interventions there as research do do that when they're trying to build resilience at work and so on. But let's let's just dig into you you have made some points there to Neil about like where work is already difficult enough, but where as it were should we embrace the difficulty of work? And where shouldn't we? So, for example, perhaps a place we shouldn't is saying, look, it's fine to work 90 hours a week. Or it's fine to not take a day off for three weeks straight. But maybe a place where we could encourage embracing difficulty work is making sure people are really stretched and challenged in their day-to-day activities, right? So is there a, a way you kind of draw the line here or have a sketch? Yeah, the things you should focus on and not in your work with workplaces? Yeah, that's, this is such a great question. No one's asked this before. One thing that came to mind, I'll answer your question directly, but one thing that came to mind as a good example of this, besides what we just talked about, is when you think about the fact, the leadership chapter, I think it's chapter eight, where it really talks about how the old leader is no longer working, that whole leadership style, it's not working, it's not going to work tomorrow, it's not going to be today. So I think this might be an interesting area. We also talk in there about how managers have the toughest job ever today, right? So if you think about embracing difficulty, I guess that's one area I would say is with managers specifically, embracing difficulty isn't a problem if you have the resources you need so you feel you can do it, right? So for example, we don't train, typically organizations don't give managers the training, the incentives, the desire actually to lead people in a really, really great way. And so that's why we see a lot of bad managers. And so with that, I would say, let's lean into, yes, it's going to be hard as hell being a manager today and being a leader just because it is so different. It's shifting moment to moment. No one knows what to do, but we will at least give you some of these guiding principles and tools as an organization so you feel not perfectly comfortable, but you feel as comfortable as you could at this moment in time to step outside that comfort zone and continue to grow. And I think the other part with that is when you think about cultures overall and you think about embracing this culture of failure, quote, or learning cultures like Microsoft did with the learn-it-alls versus the know-it-alls, that's discomfort, big time. Totally. Innovation is discomfort. So I think these are some areas we can really lean in where these are uncomfortable places and we're going to be uncomfortable and be vulnerable and do all these things. But the organization can give a few tools, I think, to help people on that journey as they're stepping out into those uncomfortable areas. Hi, friends. Nick here with just a brief interlude to share with you an update on one of our newest partnerships with the Anti-Fragile Academy. Throughout John and I's conversations with many, if not most, of our guests, one thing has been made really clear. In order for people to flourish, thrive, experience the good life, they need to develop the capacity to not only navigate and endure, but ideally grow from the bad, grow from unpleasant experiences. That's why we're thrilled to be partnering with our newest sponsor, the Anti-Fragile Academy, an organization that I co-founded with Dr. Adam Wright, Director of Mental Performance for the Washington Nationals. At the Anti-Fragile Academy, we work with adolescent athletes, executives, and educators to help them understand some of the science, not just of optimal performance, but of well-being and anti-fragility. 
the ability not only to endure and bounce back from unpleasantness, but to actually come back stronger, to grow from it. Between Adam and I, we've worked with Fortune 100 companies, Inc. 300 executives, Division I programs, and elite professional athletes and Olympians from all over the world. To find out more about how you can leverage anti-fragility training, check out our website at theantifragileacademy.com. Yeah, so follow-up to this then would also be, how do you then get, because you can imagine, let's imagine we encourage a workplace to, it seems it seems like a good idea to really stretch all staff as far as possible, be it cognitively or in certain workplaces, it might be physically, in certain workplaces it might be both. Also might be emotional challenges, having to deal with you know, a really difficult situation with colleagues and so on as part of your professional development as a really important path towards that. Let's say that the organization as a whole and the employees really embrace that, maybe really start to enjoy that. And it leads to certain workaholic tendencies of wanting just to keep being stretched and work harder and harder. I'm, I'm really enjoying this. You know, I'm going to push it a bit further by just doing 15 hour days, you know, I'm just going to keep doing this and, and also build that into it too. Cause it's going to make it even harder. Have you, have you seen that at all? Where is it were the kind of the, the dark side of trying to promote this side of well-being at work, trying to em- encourage people to embrace difficulty has the opposite effect where it can lead to work. Yes. This is so good. I love that we're digging in here. So yes. And I'll give you two examples here. I had seen this, and I think a lot of folks had seen this in the media over the years in the, the tech spaces, right, with Facebook and Google. And it's like, oh, we have all these great things for you to stay here all day and all night and work all day and all night and not leave ever. And you can get your dry cleaning done. You can eat here. You can do all this stuff. Sounds great on the surface, right? We're trying to meet some needs on the surface, but then it's actually encouraging what exactly what you're talking about. I have not had a client of mine specifically have that problem when I was with them, but I have seen that happen. So I think that's where we need to be very careful. What I would say is I think right now, Tesla and Twitter slash X is perhaps a good example of that, where yes, we got rid of a lot of people that apparently didn't want the hardcore culture, but the ones that stayed want it. Because some people do want that kind of a leadership. They do want that kind of hardcore mission. And hey, more power to you. All I would say is, I think that's where it goes back to one of the things we talked about in the beginning is that on an individual level, if I really like that or the military, for example, maybe I like that kind of an environment and I want to do that and I want to be a workaholic and that's great. That's my choice. I should opt in. But I think that the folks that don't want that, that's where I think it does become an individual choice as well as the organizational choice. I don't know if I answered your question directly, but I think it's not a super clear cut answer on that because I think it certainly can lead to what you're talking about. And that's where it comes into our individual agency to know ourselves well enough to know what we can and cannot do, what we do and do not want, how we're motivated and that type of yeah, context context specific. Use the science. It provides general guidance and rules, but it can be applied different ways, interpreted different ways, and it's got to be context specific. And that's what I've learned in all my work in general, no matter what we're talking about. Because again, I started as an academic. I'm all about the data. Everything I do is grounded in it. But I've learned very quickly that in the business world, I mean, they want to see data, but it's they don't want the theory. Like you can use the theory, but you don't tell them. You know what I mean? Like you need to be agile and kind of adapted to that particular context. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only the only thing I, I agree with pretty much everything you said there, the only thing I'd question would be if someone is kind of a self-defined workaholic and they point out these tendencies that we should say, okay, that's each their own. That's fine. I think we should, if we're defining workaholism as a bad thing and it has certain bad manifestations, we should say, okay, look, it's, it's fine to absolutely be in love with your work, to want to work as many hours as you as desire. You find so much purpose in it. You have, we have to tear you away from work for you to do something else. 
that seems fine. But when certain tendencies come through, so for example, one of our former guests, Arthur Brooks, has his own definition of workaholism, and he looks for certain characteristics or uh, symptoms of it that you also find with other addictive behaviors such as alcoholism so he he says okay do you work till you drop but literally work until you fall asleep do you sometimes hide away to work so you're at a party or a social occasion you just say hey i'm just going to go to the bathroom you get out your phone and start replying to emails or you're like you just excuse me for a moment trying to hide it away like someone with an addiction um you know to a substance for example might go and hide away and do it right when those kinds of things creep in that sounds like where it's gone too far because it's negatively impacting other areas of your life, which I take it a really important well-being on your account as well, like human connection, for example, right? And I think that's where the role of the manager, it should have always been this way, but especially now, the manager of today and tomorrow needs to be much more focused on that kind of thing because they don't actually, with AI and technology and all this, the ways work is changing, the manager's job is changing in the sense that they're not the one with all the answers anymore and they're not telling people what to do. So their job now is actually to let the technology do that, let their team be amazing. And their job is actually to have those one-on-ones to spot those types of symptoms that you're just talking about in that person and just ask. They don't have to you know, demand they stop doing it, but they should be asking those very pointed questions and see, if is this really working for you? Yeah. You just gave us an opportunity there. And and in a former life, I was a history teacher, bachelor's degree in it. And you weave a really nice, I think, parallel in the way work is changing currently versus how maybe it's changed or just socioeconomic and ecosystem in general has changed. We walk our listeners through that a little bit. I think anyone in a any sort of leadership position right now would really benefit from thinking that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of things that have changed even before the pandemic. We know this, right? But especially now, I mean, I'll just rattle some things off and tell me if you want to dive in more. But I think, you know, our workplaces are still, a lot of the mindsets and the ways we work are still based on workplaces and factories from 100 years ago. And so that's one aspect of it that's totally changed now with the democratization of technology and the way that the organization is not the center of attention anymore. It's now more on an individual level and individuals don't need any central organization to make their income. They literally, we know influencers, entrepreneurs, side hustles, whatever, they don't need it anymore. And so over time, I think with that, the employer-employee relationship has really, it's shaped, it's been shaped by these different expectations that are changing, regulations, market forces, all that kinds of stuff. And so I think now at this point, because of all of that, and now on top of that, the pandemic as well, and people are kind of revisiting like what they want out of their job, what they want out of their life, as we all know. Work is going to probably serve a different purpose for a lot of people. And it already has. We're already seeing this, right? So it's for whatever reason, better or worse. But what I think that comes with this in a big way is a changed social contract. Because I think as we all know, you know, back in since the industrial era up until like 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it's like it really was like this, oh, the company man. And, you know, you kind of give your whole blood, sweat, tears, your whole life to an organization because you get, you know, raises and great pay and bonuses, and then you get a pension at the end. But none of that exists today. None of that happens. And the workforce looks drastically different. Their lifestyle is drastically different. It's all super different. And that's just one data point. And so I think because of all of that, plus because of the fact that Unfortunately, organizations have had no problem over the years, just laying people off on a whim, not offering the pay and the benefits and the pension they used to, all this stuff. So why should people still devote their whole life to that organization? I don't know. So I think those are some of the things, some of the reasoning behind it, but this is all shifting very quickly today. And now it's just what I'm proposing in the book is a new social contract is much more transparent. It's authentic. It's about mutual value creation between both the organization and the employee, whether it's while the person's employed or not. So it's like that ongoing long-term partnership where I can still benefit the company, they still benefit me, even once I'm not working there anymore. And that may come in terms of 
brand advocacy, boomerang employment, referring clients, all kinds of things that we talk about in chapter three. I think there's just a lot of really untapped uh, sources of value that both the company and the employees can offer each other going forward. Sounds a lot like conscious capitalism. Yeah. Yes. And it is that, but I think it's definitely that. It's definitely like the stakeholder uh, capitalism versus just yeah, right. That part, sure. especially. Right. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Yep. Just involving everybody. Like, again, it's a both and it's a win, 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 you know, Simon Sinek, infinite game. Plenty. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Got cool. it. I mean, I think since you're proposing such a bold, bold move in work, which is fascinating and awesome that you're doing this, a new social contract, I think we should dig into this a bit more. So can you explain a little more what exactly this involves? You've mentioned there one thing it seems of what you just said then is a different relationship between employees and organizations such that when they leave the organization, it's not just completely cut ties. There might be a continuing relationship, a kind of maybe even a legacy of some kind, but a relationship's maintained, which may itself be a kind of work relationship, which perhaps ties into the kind of the gig economy we're in now, lots of solopreneurs and entrepreneurs who have various you know, side hustles going on, as it were, those kind of things might emerge from previous jobs, I take it, rather than just this distinction between you've got your permanent job with your permanent contract, or you're in the gig economy, rather it's a blend of those. Can you yeah, explain more what this new social contract looks like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I've been so fortunate in that I've been in some of these larger consulting firms during the earlier parts of my career, and they were way ahead of their time. So I actually experienced a lot of this by being part of them, even Prior to now. So, for example, um, if you think about like PwC or Accenture, basically any of the big four are really good at this, where once you have a work for them, you stay, you know, you do your thing, whatever. But like they're so on the ball and they're so aware that like business can be referred all the time, right? So, while you're an employee, while you're not, you refer other employees, you refer all kinds of different other business or opportunities in the ecosystem. And so, the way that they did that, I mean, there's a lot of ways. Obviously, the number one thing is that you have to treat your people well while they're in the organization, right? Because <laughs> that's because if you don't, there's no one's gonna refer any business to you. Sorry. And you'll have bad reviews on Glassdoor. So it's not, you know, gonna be helping anyone. So so the employee experience is really important while the employee is engaged with you. And that's the whole journey, even after they offboard. And then what these other these firms have done is they've created pretty robust alumni programs. So where like I get emails, there's all kinds of events happening all the time. There's all kinds of, hey, like like Deloitte, I think, is doing this, and I won't need any other bigger names because I, you know, I don't know if I should, but there's a lot of firms that people that came from the big four and other big firms have started smaller boutique consulting firms of consultants that are contractors. So that's part of this ecosystem too. So it's like, oh, you were part of this firm. Now I started my own smaller firm over here. Do you want to be a contractor working on X, Y, or Z through me? So that kind of thing is part of the ecosystem. And then again, like I mentioned, referring business because today it's not like, I think back in the day, it was very much like, it, it seems anyways, like the mindset was, okay, so all the leaders and the CEOs, they're the only ones that know how to bring in clients and customers. They're the only ones that are like at the professional level. And then it, it seems from reviewing the literature that like, you know, I wasn't alive then, but they kind of viewed the worker as less than like, oh, I don't need to have them refer me business. You know, it wasn't like a very equal partnership in that way. But now everything is super democratized. Everybody has their own brand, even millennials, Gen Z, even before they step into the workplace, they're they're influencers. They have their own following and they have all they've been treated like leaders and consulted that way since they were young. So when they come to your workplace, they are actually a very evolved source of value that the organization can tap into as far as them talking about you on social media, voluntarily or un- you know what I mean? Like they're more than happy to do that and you want them to be saying good things. So there's that piece. So it's all about creating that experience and that kind of 
co-creative, co-elevated relationship between the organization and the employees so that when they leave, again, as we just mentioned, they have you in very positive light and they're willing to refer business and, and media and employees and that sort of thing. Sitting here thinking like it, duh, it just seems like the right thing to do, right? And at the same time, your point from from earlier, I think, is well made that to me, it, it seems, I think, in terms of the data, but also just the anecdote of the leverage has shifted in many cases from employers and employees, you know, to all these points we're making about the way you can access income and revenue certain privileged positions. Like obviously a lot of people are dealing with a lot of different difficulties, but just the world is, of work is totally different. So what I would have always hoped a company would maybe do out of the goodness of their heart and because it just makes sense that if you treat people better, you're probably going to have better outcomes. It kind of sounds like they realize, well, it's also a strategic advantage at this point as well. Well, and that's what I'm arguing. This is what I always tell my clients. I'm like, it is the right thing to do. I'm not going to argue. It is. But it's not just that. Because again, I, I've i been trained very well in my work that it's it's great to bring in the fluffy butterflies and the foosball tables. But you know, I also know that at the end of the day, leaders don't care if there's not an ROI or a metric tied to it. So all of my work is very much done exactly that. It is the right thing to do, but it's not just the right thing to do. It's actually the smart business move to do as well. Yeah, I love this idea of work alumni programs. I mean, the only thing I've experienced close to that is when a member of staff has been with an organization for so long that they they then, you know, get some gift or there's some dinner in their honor. Yeah, you know, if they've been at a business for say 10 years, 15 years, maybe 20 years, maybe even longer, and then they kind of enter some unique status with the business organization or institution. But I haven't seen it institution-wide is this a, so you mentioned one business doing this is this a growing thing are some businesses creating alumni programs for members of staff who say work for them for like, like at least 12 months or something so unfortunately i've only seen it in the big consulting firms i have not seen it in any other companies i think there's probably some that are starting to do it but i mean i'm talking over 10 years ago this was a thing in these firms that i'm talking about so this fact that more companies aren't doing this today i don't get it wow yeah yeah okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, it's like Nick yeah. said, like, yeah, duh, seems obvious. Yeah. 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 I mean, I I think we all know why some are, <laughs> like, I mean, candidly, right? Th those are more, I think, extractive relationships. But that's what I think is so cool about this topic, you know, whatever you call it or however you talk about it, well being boost, happiness advantage, right? All these sorts of things. But it doesn't necessarily need to be an either or. You know, that brings me actually to another question, though, because I've worked with certain populations where, I've really had that challenged. I'm not I'm not sure that there can be a both and for them. I think sometimes it is an either or, you know, like I'm thinking of the legal field at this point, right? They have wildly high burnout numbers across the board. Have you run into any ecosystems where you're like, oh, just, you know, this isn't changing. This is very much like the nature of the business, right? At this really 30,000 foot level just doesn't allow for the flourishing effect. This is such a good question. So I have definitely come across leaders who feel that way. Not that it's the business, yep. but the yep. leaders just don't care. And then in those cases, I it doesn't always get through. But what I just do is I lead with the numbers. I don't say it's a nice thing to do. I tell them, this is what you do, like for the metrics you're looking for. But to your point, industry-wise or business-wise that don't allow for it. I don't, I'm sure there are, perhaps. I will say, though, that I've worked in... So many industries, like even call centers, right? That's a super lean margin business. It's really, they 
historically they're known to not really care that much about their people in general, just like stereotypically. I was, uh, I spent a year as a VP of culture and employee experience at one of those organizations. And to be honest, like it was really cool. Actually, this is only a couple of years ago. We did so much work in one year. We rolled out like 12 different strategic initiatives from a people specific point of view. And it was all tied to the business metrics and the business pain points. So it was all very cohesive, but even they with their lean margins and really cut cost conscious and not really focused on treating people super great in that industry, even they were, they got it. Like the CHRO, the CEO, they brought me in specifically to make that happen. I don't think all of those companies do that in that industry, but that one specifically did. So I honestly think this could apply. And when you think about legal too, like the burnout, that that is an industry I've worked in as well. And I totally agree with you that like, Maybe it's the nature of stereotypically the personalities of the people that work in it. Maybe it is the nature of the business. There is some of that. Yeah. There that, is some that, of it. There right? is some of it, that personality cutting both directions. Yes, absolutely. But I think that it, it, in those cases, it just, I don't think it's about the the industry. I think it literally is about the, the leaders and, and, how, and people on the leadership team and the organization. So you mentioned a, a couple of minutes ago that, you know, when talking to those leaders, you lead with the numbers, right? What's the ROI, that sort of stuff. You know, I, I assume you you can do this in your sleep. Could you lay some of the, just the business case on us for whoever's listening? Like, what are some of the numbers? Why should somebody care about this beyond just, oh, I think it's the right thing to do? Yeah. I mean, okay. So for, as, as we said, it was already important now, especially it's insanely important. If you think about, it, especially with AI and all the technology that is really ramping up quickly, we really need to get the human part, right? So that's just kind of like an anecdotal thought on there when you think about that. And what I would say is I think that when you think about all, and I can bring the data in if you'd like, but there's so much data that proves that, you know, when you think about um, toxic cultures, burnout, turnover, retention, productivity, presenteeism, meaning you're there, but you're not actually working because you're sick or you're just disengaged, essentially, all that stuff. It's billions and billions and hundreds, like it's so much money that is spent every year by organizations. And they even break it down to like how much it costs to replace a person. It's one and a half times their salary, like all these things. These are all these numbers and metrics that leaders are chasing, right? And then when you think about, for example, here's a direct correlation too. I mean, all these are, but you think about employee experience and customer experience, people kind of hear employee experience. They're like, well, what's that? Well, there's been so much work done, especially I think it was Tiffany Bova from Salesforce recently wrote a book and she makes the direct correlation with lots of data. And I think it was the number that she showed was it's like almost twice as much when you have a, a great employee experience, it actually increases your customer experience to the point where your revenue goes up almost twice as much. So like 1.8%, I think was the number. So, I mean, that's just one kind of data point, but there's so much research out there. And so I always lead with like, what does that actually mean? And so the good way to do that too, is when you go, when I go into an organization, I always ask, what are the business pain points? What are we trying to solve? Because usually they'll bring me in saying, oh, I think it's our people are leaving, people are disengaged. Well, that's everywhere, right? That's not shocking. So let's get under the meat of that and find out what it is about your organization and why it matters to you. What are you trying to achieve? And then I work backwards from what they're trying to achieve in the business and tie that directly to some of these metrics around the people, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So this relates to, I think one of the well, the key themes of your book and one of the chapters is entitled Well-Being the Foundation of Sustainable High Performance. So I take it this is part of this argument, right? For example, in the case of higher well-being for employees improves customer satisfaction, customer attention, attracting more customers. I take it that's one strategy, right? Do you want to elaborate a bit further why you would argue that well-being is the foundation of sustainable high performance? Yeah, I mean, I'll break it down on a couple levels. The first level is just like really simple and then we'll go in depth. But like if you think about it just simply, right? So 
kind of as we talked about in the beginning, like if people, if your individual employees are worried about being laid off because that's rumors are going on and you're not doing good change management around it, or they're burnt out, they can't pay their rent because they don't make enough money. Um, they're battling chronic health, mental or physical conditions, mental health issues, stress, anxiety, all that stuff. They're absolutely not giving you their best. There's no way they possibly could. So that's just like kind of anecdotally, just think about that for a minute. It kind of makes sense if you think about it. And then when you think about the research, so there are tons of research, Deloitte and other, plenty of other people have shown this, that when the basic needs, which I would define holistically in the book as financial, mental, and physical well-being, when those are not met, the employee engagement and productivity decline, attrition and healthcare costs go way up. And I actually began my career as a workplace productivity and well-being researcher. So I've done a lot of that research. I know exactly the connection between it. And it's very direct. It's a very causal relationship. And so you see that like that and all these things that ways of working and things that we do in the organization, those are actually impacting those bottom line metrics like productivity, engagement, absenteeism, burnout, like we just talked about. So I guess when I think about like well-being as a foundation, it's like kind of like when you talked about the burnout thing earlier, like we can do that for a little bit. We can work our buns off for 12 hours a day, 15, 20 hours a day. We can do that short term, but if you want sustainable ongoing ability to deliver, not just sit there in a chair, but really deliver the metrics and everything the company is looking for with the clients and the customers sustainably, you have to make sure you take care of the, the people first. Because the thing is, is like, we're, we're, we're humans having a working experience. We're not robots or workers having a human experience. So I really try to make that connection for leaders that although you may just think of this as like sticks and boxes, as far as your org chart or whatever, these are actually humans. And so you have to take care of that human part. And once you do that, it actually can give you all the results you're looking for. Gotcha. And is this how the key themes relating to flourishing emerge through this idea of well-being being the foundation? So got human connection, character strengths, fulfillment of potential, purpose, and some other areas. I'm just wondering why, because there's lots of areas of flourishing, but these are key areas. Did they emerge from your research that these are the key things that promote well-being, but also have this two sides to them. On the one hand, you promote them, you get a thriving workplace. The antithesis of them, the absence of them, if you like, or when they're really negative is where you get languishing in the workplace. Absolutely. And kind of as we mentioned earlier, we we're talking about um, Ryan and DC's self-determination theory and Maslow's hierarchy. Granted, these are only two theories of motivation, but they're probably the two most popular, the most prominent theories. And so again, I had that in the back of my mind when I started my work. And then it's like through seeing all these case studies and all these situations, I'm like, oh my God, this is that, this is that, this is that. And I'm like, it just basically falls into these exact human needs every time. So we're going to come to our, our sort of final question and then we'll start to wrap a little bit. You've heard the episodes, right? So this is the flourishing question. We're going to kind of ask you, like, give us one thing that people should start with. But I think, you know, given what we've talked about today, it probably makes sense to divide that up into two buckets. So there's, I think, the audience you generally cover in the flourishing effect, leaders, middle managers, whoever that might be. But then also maybe you can, you know, tease your next book a little bit. And if you're talking to the individual employee, what can they do? Right. So general question, one thing you'd nudge people to consider to help them start to flourish more, more frequently at higher levels, however you want to call it, start with the employer or the leader, and then let's go to the employee. Yeah, no, thank you for the question. I love it. So on an organizational level, at a very high level, get this book because it's going to help you do it Um, because we can talk about it. But if you don't feel comfortable doing it, you have to. So what I would say is. You could start by removing the sources of friction. We talk about these in chapter two. It gives you a very high level kind of all the things that companies are doing wrong right now that actually 
mitigate flourishing and what they need to be doing differently. We get into lots of depth in that on chapter 14, which is about removing that friction and creating a really great employee experience. So I would say remove the friction, create the employee experience. And then if you want to take it to another level, the most important thing that I would say, once you've kind of gotten that basic stuff done, you've gotten the crap out of the way, essentially, then I would actually move into chapters. I think it's nine through 13, where we're talking about meeting these human needs that we're talking about. Because again, just kind of like you need a well-being as the foundation of sustainable performance, you need to start somewhere. And so you kind of need certain things as like a baseline. So get rid of all the clunky friction stuff first, and then it makes it easier to move in and start meeting people's human needs. So that's what I would say at an organizational level. Great. So at an individual level, um, as you mentioned, I am going to be writing about this in my next book. And I think the way that I've, I'm framing it right now, and again, there's a lot that goes into this, but at a very high level, it's very much what I would call number one is self-realization. So it's like really knowing yourself. And there's a lot of things we could talk about here, but it's really getting under whether it's assessments and just reflection, all kinds of practices to really get to know yourself and what you're meant to do on this earth and kind of what you need to flourish essentially as a human. And then the next piece would be self-alignment. So once we know ourselves very well, then we need to make sure we're aligning our identity and our behaviors to match that. The next level would be self-actualization, which is really using everything we just talked about and growing into and expanding, you know, why you're here, growing your skills and your talents and your experiences. So that for the fourth level, which I would say is self-transcendence on some level, you're using all those gifts and skills and things you've developed and mastered to help others, which will bring meaning and purpose. Great answer. Where can people learn more about your work? They can go to my website, which is tamilmiller.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. I love connecting with people and having, you know, chats and comments and, you know, questions and, and from the community. And the book is on Amazon. Amazing. Thank you so much, Tanil. It's been a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in, everyone, today. We hope to see you soon. Another Thanks, Tanil. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yep, this was awesome. Thanks so much for listening to Flourish FM. We hope you enjoyed the content. Please be sure to leave us a five-star review and hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast and on all major social media platforms. And if you visit our website, flourishfmpodcast.com, you can sign up to our newsletter. We send out a weekly newsletter. First newsletter of every month, we share a long-form blog. And every newsletter, every week, we share highlights from our previous episodes. Please hit subscribe on our website.